I never get tired of hearing Darren sing. It's such a joy to be here with you. And uh, Your pastor may not want you to bring me out here, but he didn't say I couldn't take Darren home with me. So, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Steve, I think you're probably watching. I'll, uh, I'll be careful from now on. It is a, a joy to be here with you this morning. I, I praise God for an opportunity to stand in this pulpit. Uh, you don't need me to tell you that you have a, a shepherd who cares for his people, who loves his people. I remember distinctly many times where uh, Steve and I would gather around a sack lunch at the Master's Seminary and talk about all kinds of things, about life and what things would be like in the future. And none of us dreamed that we would be in the places that we're in. He in Bakersfield, only an hour and a half from where I grew up in Lancaster, and me in Dallas, Texas, only a few minutes from where he was pastoring. We swapped places. And so I call it a great joy to be here this morning and to be a part of this. I'm thankful, too, for the Oweilers and for their uh, great love for the world's great commission, God's great commission, and for your service with the Master's Academy International, your volunteer service. Thank you for that and for uh, your hospitality for Debbie and I this weekend. It's been great. There's a lot to be thinking about this week, isn't there? Uh, if you look at your bulletin, you'll notice that on the notes that I've given you, you'll notice the title of today's message is to work as unto the Lord. To work as unto the Lord. You would think that I would come prepared to talk about an encouraging message about a pandemic, uh, about the world hurting. And I want to say to you this morning that we're going to talk about a topic that uh, will help the world from its hurting. And that's about the work that you do, the, the, the way that you provide for your family, uh, to look at what Scripture says about how we are to perform for God's glory, even in the marketplace. It's so important to think through those terms because, as I said, it is for God's glory and it is for our economic good. We don't give up now. We keep forging forward with the tasks that God has given us to serve well for His glory, even at work. You might notice in your bulletin that we're going to spend much of our time in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. But before we go there, I would invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't know where that is, it's page number one, probably in your Bible, just like mine. Genesis chapter one. We're going to spend just a few moments over there in a minute. Before we get started, I have a question for you. As you read your Bible, as you study it, have you noticed about how it shows God's purposes even for work, for your labor and for your toil even in the marketplace? Some of you might clue out, be tempted to clue out and say, uh, I'm a stay-at-home mom or I don't have to work, I'm retired, etc. Uh, this is an important message because you are listening to God's word and you're pouring into a younger generation that hasn't heard these kinds of things before. And so don't think that you're excused. You are a discipler or you're being discipled. Let's learn from God's word this morning. Before you make your way to your job each and every day, do you Seek the wise, the wise counsel from the 66 books of the Bible so that it informs you and it transforms how you accomplish your daily responsibilities, whether at home as you work or somewhere in the marketplace. Did you know that God's first recorded conversation with man is about our job description, what we're supposed to do? 
It's God's first communication with us. I'll draw your attention to chapter 1 of Genesis. We're going to start in verse 24 and make our way down through verse 31. And as we go through this, I want you to see it's that, that God gives us uh, expectations in the marketplace. And we'll, th- we'll look at those this morning. But let's start off with verse 24. I'll read. You follow along. We read these words. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the earth after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to the likeness Excuse me, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, and in his image he created him, male and female, and he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish and over the sea and over the birds in the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which has fruit-yielding seed, and it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw that all that he had made was good, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This section of Scripture is your God-given letter of expectations, complete with four commands. From verse 28, you'll see four particular things, four important things. He says in verse 28, you must be fruitful and multiply. You must fill the earth. You must subdue the earth. You must rule over the fish, the birds, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is our job description in some way, shape, or form. Notice again verse 26. You have to watch this very closely. God makes us in what? In his image. He says in in our image. We see traces of the Trinity here. God, in verse 26, calls you to bear what? His his image. Look at the text, verse 26. But how are we to bear God's image in accordance with his likeness? Again, I say verse 26. We bear his image as we rule over his creation. Therefore, the popular notion that work is a curse is unbiblical. Work was given to us long before the first sin in the garden. God gave us his expectations, our job performance before Eve's deception and Adam's rebellion. Adam's sin didn't excuse his responsibility to work, but it did change something, didn't it? It simply means that work is difficult to the extreme. It's hard, and that's okay. That's what God has given us. Look at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, just a a page over. Verse 17 through 19. 
It was after Adam's sin and Eve's sin. Then he said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Glance at verse 17. Work isn't cursed, but the ground is. Why? Because of Adam's sin. God cursed the land, and the resulting effect of verse 19 is man's painful toil for groceries, right? Long lines, maybe, at Walmart and Costco to satisfy our hunger. His appetite drove him to eat. His hunger motivates him to work hard to stay alive. He refuses, if he refuses to work, High-handed rebellion, if he says, I'm not going to do it, then he mustn't eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, 2 Thessalonians was written to a church. You know the passage where it says, if you don't work, you don't eat. Again, I say it's written to the church and it's a command. Really, what he's saying there is, church, you mustn't feed that guy if he refuses to work has nothing to say about those who can't work. He's talking about those who are rebellious and refuse to work. Think about the remainder of Adam's 900 years of existence. He worked the fields by the sweat of his brow, and we can't miss this, each and every day for nine centuries, for 900 years, Adam must have thought about the good old days. (laughs) When it was simple, When he just worked and it wasn't by the sweat of his brow. With God's first communication about labor and even in the New Testament, work remains important to God and is crucial for our survival. Our quest to conquer our labors and manage or lead others in their work is a minute-by-minute struggle. That's the way it is. With that, let's turn to Ephesians 1. As I said, we'll spend much of our time in chapter 6, but if we don't understand Ephesians 1, then we're not going to understand Ephesians 6 either. We need to keep it all in context. The entire letter of Ephesians was written to help us walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We know that from chapter 4, verse 1. Walk in a manner worthy of our calling, even in our place of labor, even in, even in the marketplace. So here it begins, the path to work biblically. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, addressed this letter to who? In verse 1, we read right there, it's written to faithful saints. He's writing to believers. He's writing to Christians, the redeemed. And he's telling them who they are in Christ. And the last, four, the last three chapters, it's going to be, now that you know who you are in Christ, here's how you behave. In Ephesians 1 through 3, we know that this is about who you are in Christ and how you got saved. In chapter 1, we're called by the Father, we're redeemed by the Son, and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, and you're saved by grace through faith in chapter 2. So we know that this is to faithful believers, to faithful saints, 
He's not writing to the unredeemed. If you don't know Christ, chapters 4 through 6 won't work for you because you don't know Christ. That's why chapters 1 through 3 are so important. Chapters 4 through 6 tells you how to behave like a Christian. In fact, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul begs you to walk worthily of God's choice of you. You can read about his choice of you in chapter 1, verse 4. In chapter 5, verse 1, Paul implores us to imitate God, literally to bear God's image. Isn't that what we just saw in Genesis 1? We are to bear God's image in accordance even with the job description that we were given in chapter 1 of the first book of the Bible. You must know God's will in chapter 5 of Ephesians verse 17. He says you must, it's a command, you must know God's will. The implication is that if you don't know God's will, you are, Paul says, foolish. I oftentimes feel foolish. But you know what? What he writes in the rest of this book alleviates the foolishness. It tells us how to walk worthy of our calling. What is God's will? Chapter 5, verses 18 to 21, commands four ways to be filled with the Spirit. You look at the text, chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. I'll just summarize it. Four ways to be filled with the Spirit is speaking to one another, singing to the Lord, giving thanks for all things, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We're most concerned with the fourth one today, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Wives, respect your husbands and submit to them. Parent and child relationships. How does a parent respond to their child and how is a child called to respond to their parent employer and employee relationships in chapter 6. This morning, we're considering a message from the Lord that is normally not discussed in the church, and that is, how do I walk with Christ at work? An important question for you is, how does your exposure to Pastor Steve's expository preaching affect your Monday through Friday and Saturday, if you work on Saturday, of course? We're asking and answering the question, as a believer, what does it mean to labor, to work, to toil, and to slog it out in the marketplace? Paul's very clear about how to act like God's people at work. I'm so thankful for this section of Scripture. Back over to chapter 6 is our main focus. Our text this morning is verses 5 through 9. I'll read those and you follow along as I read. And then we'll develop this section of Scripture to really understand what it means to walk with Christ at work. Verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. We have to realize that Paul wrote this letter 2,000 years ago. Did you know that the Apostle Paul was a slave when he wrote this? You know that. 
Titus chapter 1, verse 1, he says he is God's slave and Jesus' apostle. Everyone is a slave, whether to sin or to God. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Your Lord is who or what you serve. Your master, your idol, is who or what you think about the moment before you sin. I'll say it again. It bears repeating. The Lord is who or what you serve. Your master, your idol, is who or what you think about the very moment before you sin. You're a slave to what keeps you from Jesus Christ. And you're Jesus' slave when you are walking with him. Yes, even at work. The Bible says that you're either shackled to your own sin or you're bound to Christ. You're enslaved to idols or you serve Christ. Either way, you're not your own. Slavery was alive and well in the ancient Near East. 2,000 years ago, guess who read this letter for the very first time? Well, we know. We've already seen it in chapter 1, verse 1. He's written it to faithful saints. What else do we know about those faithful saints? We know they were slaves, and we know that they were masters here in chapter 6. This is who he's writing to. So, as some detractors from God's Word might say, we should throw out the Bible because it talks about slavery. When in actuality, the Bible was written when slavery was a big deal. These were believers who were part of this this context of living, this culture of life. This is the way things were done back then. In Exodus 21.16, if you kidnap a man, you die. Even a stolen man in your possession equals the death penalty. Deuteronomy 24.7, kidnappers shall die. Purge this evil from among you. Paul's message isn't about slavery, as you might think today. He's telling slaves and masters how to be faithful saints in their culture. Slavery in that world was a way of life. One-third of the Roman Empire back then was slaves, including Christians. These faithful saints were doctors and lawyers and teachers and cooks and craftsmen and farmers and foreign prisoners of war. They were slaves in their own right. These were faithful saints. Some call them human capital. Think of them as implements that their master plucked from their toolbox for his selfish use and put them back when he was done. In that world, the ox and the man were both commodities for barter and trade. So then, what's the only difference between a threshing ox and a working man? The ox couldn't speak. They were both used by their master. Men and animals could be purchased and divested of for any reason or no reason at all. You think your place as a Christian in the workplace is tough? Christian men and women and children, just like you and me, they live there. They raised their families there. They worked there, and they were beaten there, and they died there. And yet Paul gave them instructions about how to walk in a manner worthy of God's choice of them. We must never forget that God graciously gave them and you and me biblical principles for work. You and I aren't slaves, nor are we masters of men. So 
why even talk about Ephesians 5, excuse me, 6, 5 through 9? Because this passage is about how to work worthily of your calling so that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit at work. Isn't that fascinating? Verse 18 of chapter 5 is where it really kicks this off. You want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. These are the things that you do. And what we're fascinated with today is submitting to one another. Well, that's just the intro. Let's get into the text. So if you're filled with the Spirit in 518 on the corporate clock, there are four action items to fully embrace as you work for the Lord faithfully in the marketplace. You'll see it in your notes. Believers must follow instructions. Believers must do God's will from the heart. Believers must recognize that their good will be rewarded by the Lord. And believers must lead as if managing Jesus himself in verse 9. So the first action item so that you can be filled with the Spirit at work is this. Believers must follow instructions. We saw that in verse 5. You see, you're filled with the Spirit, chapter 5, verse 18, when you obey your boss, chapter 6, verse 5. As you carry out your boss's instructions, the message is the Spirit fills you. The famous saying, what interests my boss fascinates me, is something that's important to consider here. What interests my boss keeps my family fed and a roof over their head clothed. I worked for a Fortune 100 company for 20 years. The company you would well know is FedEx. I firmly believe it's one of the greatest companies the world has ever seen. I still believe that. I haven't even been there since 2008. My annual letter of expectations was supposed to be reviewed on a quarterly basis. I knew exactly what I had to accomplish. My annual letter of expectations to my own employees were were 10 critical indices for their success. Some of you might know KPIs, key performance indicators. For us, it was revenue versus goal. It was positive profit margin versus negative profit margin. If you're not making money as a company, you're going out of business and everybody loses their jobs. It was our responsibility in my department to ensure that wouldn't happen. Employee satisfaction and retention, customer satisfaction was important. From the front-line employee to the C-level executive office, PSP drove our evaluations. PSP, people, service, profit. You take care of your people. They'll provide a great service, and your company will make a great profit. Every employee at FedEx knew that. You cut a FedEx, dedicated FedEx employee, and they bleed purple. This was my life for 20 years. Thank God for his goodness. In keeping with the theme of verse 5, it was with great fear. Do you see it in verse 5? Great fear and trembling that I listened to and followed and obeyed instructions. I expected my direct reports to do the same. So right there in verse 5, Paul gives you three critical directives for doing what the boss says. He says obey with what? He defines it with fear and trembling. Employees, this involves an ongoing obedience. Bosses, I have a quick warning for you. Scripture is very clear. Paul doesn't tell you to scare your employees to death. Okay? If, if you do that, then you're going to have to reconcile that kind of thinking with verse 9 when we get there. The word fear in verse 5 is also used of fearing God. Think a deep reverential sense of accountability to the Lord himself. The words fear and trembling are also used in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. I'll read it. So then, my beloved, 
just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but how much more in my absence? Work out your salvation. You know this with what? Fear and trembling. You're to chart your boss's directives with a sincere heart. Void of any sinful motivations on your own. There's a second critical directive for doing what the boss says, and you can see that in verse 5. Number two, you must obey with a sincere heart. We're just not talking about rote obedience here. We're talking from a sincere heart, a heart that desires to please. Sincere, think of the word integrity. Uh, Sincere, acting without a hidden agenda. Don't pretend you're laboring when you're really loitering. It's sincerity. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That includes what we do in the marketplace, in the public square. Everything you do in the office, the factory, or in the classroom, students, is for God's glory. Let's take a look at the third critical directive for doing what the boss says. It's found in verse 6. You must listen to and follow your manager's instructions without sinful motivations on your part. You're going to see a term that's used in verse 6. Do you see it? Eye service. The word eye service is Paul's invented term. In fact, we can't find anywhere else in Koine Greek, the, the, the Greek language of the day, that used this term. It's only used twice. It's used here, and it's also used in Colossians 3.22. It literally means eye slavery. Eye slavery. If, if you've been in the workforce for very long, you have seen this, no doubt, hundreds of times. You've seen others. When the boss is around, they are slave to the boss's eyes. Oh, that they would work that way when the boss wasn't around. Hmm. Why is it that when the boss is present, no one seems to be lazy? Hmm. When upper, upper management traveled with me, I ran them ragged from morning until evening. Why? Because I was a slave to their eyeballs. They saw my best efforts. I wanted them to think I worked like that every day. That's eye service. That's eye slavery. I was enslaved to their eyes. Does this resonate with you, perhaps, as it does me? Don't be enslaved to the watchful eyes of others. Serve as unto the Lord with sincerity in your heart. Maybe we can paint it another way. Maybe for those of us who remember our sixth grade at school, right, when the teacher walked out of the classroom, I know how my sixth grade class behaved. She wasn't there, and so we did whatever we felt like we wanted to do, and I was one of the ringleaders. I remember those days. You know what? When you work at home, labor harder than when you're under the boss's nose, as if working for Jesus himself, because in reality, you are. Don't call in sick when you're not sick. Labor as unto Christ who provides you with good health. Okay. I need to tell you about my worst day off ever. It happened about 20 minutes from here. I told you I grew up in Lancaster, and so we got around. Bakersfield was a fun place for us. So during my career at FedEx, my younger years, a good friend of mine said, hey, weather's warmed up. Let's get out to the lake, do some water skiing. I'm like, I got to work today. Just call in sick. 
oh, you know, I could do that. Hesitantly, I did. Took Debbie with me. We went out to the lake, Lake Buena Vista. Everybody knows where that is, right? It was in March, this time of year. And normally, I would do all kinds of stretches and, and get ready to get on the water. I used to compete in water skiing. It was my favorite sport. We went out there, and I didn't stretch. I didn't get ready. And so when I was out there just goofing around on the water, uh, laying down on the ski at uh, 60, 36 miles an hour, and I noticed just as I started my cut back towards the wake, there was a knot in the rope. Well, that knot came out as soon as I put pressure on it, and it sent me flying over my skis, and I couldn't walk very well at the end of the day. And for several days after that, God gave me a reason to call in sick. I swore I would never do that again, ever. Uh, I was given my just due. Don't call in sick. Serve as unto Christ. So to be filled with the Spirit at work, you must follow instructions. There's a, a second way to be filled with the Spirit at work. Believers must do God's will from the heart. Look at verse 6. Not by way of eye service, as men pleasers, but as slaves from, of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. I have to point you back in your remembrance to Ephesians 5.17. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here's the will of the Lord right there in verse 6. Do his will from the heart, literally from the soul. The word there in verse 6 is from the soul. So we see two incentives for doing God's will, one from a positive compulsion and the other from a negative motivation. The first incentive for doing God's will is serving. Verse 7, serving as unto the Lord. Uh, it's a verb. It's slaving. It shows action. It's the word doulos. You've heard this before. Slaving. He's writing to slaves and he says, be a slave. Serve as unto the Lord. When things are falling apart on the job, when your boss is a tyrant and a dictator and unbearable, Ephesians 6, 7, with good will continue serving the Lord. Isn't that encouraging? It's good stuff. The second incentive for doing God's will is from a negative motivation in verse 7. Do you see it? Not to men. You say, wait a minute, I, I work for people. But the Lord is saying, serve as unto the Lord, as if not to men. You must obey God even when your employer threatens you to disobey him. In my corporate world, I clung to three self-imposed limitations. I call them two ends and a C. I call them numbers, nightclubs, and censorship. They're the predominant threats for believers. Numbers, expense reports, mileage, sales projections, profitability, tax statements, quarterly and annual reports. You ever wonder what the Bible has to say about numbers and reports? Proverbs 20, verse 10. Differing weights and differing measures, both of them are abominable, detestable, loathsome, and offensive to the Lord. So you have to ask yourself, do my numbers today on this report reflect the truth? More importantly, do your figures honor Christ when he's the only one looking at what you've put in there? Or are your numbers an offense to God? Oh, the stock market is a sweet temptation and will reward you handsomely for cheating. 
But God's glory doesn't have a ticker symbol or a price tag to it. And neither does your integrity. Never falsify numbers. Even if it means you're going to get fired, serve your employer as though you're serving as Jesus' slave. Verse 7. Here's the second end, nightclubs. Guys, the pressure's on when you're traveling and you're with your boss, you're with employees and customers and suppliers, and they want to go somewhere. You're not sure where they're going for dinner. What do you do? How do you prepare for this? One of the things I was taught early on was to ask the question of those that I was with because I travel a lot. And I would say, guys, just help me out here. Is is this something that you would take your wife and your daughter to, your 13-year-old daughter? And I could usually tell by the look on the eyes whether or not I would go. You can catch a cab. You can get back to where you need to go, but don't join in on something like that if you can't be a part of it biblically. We've seen the two ends now for the C, censorship. Your primary function on the job is to please your, is to please your, uh, make your, uh, your employer's goals, not evangelism on the corporate clock. But you know what? When you're filled with the Spirit at work, people want to know what's different about you. Why does this fellow employee not act the way everybody else acts in disappointment or whatever situation? When you work as if you're laboring for Jesus, they want to know how you manage the stress so well. How do you maintain a love for your family the way that you do it when we're all going through the same thing? They want to know about the hope that's within you. Even during the pandemic of our days, how do you maintain uh, an outlook that honors Christ? When the boss is on the warpath and the office is in utter chaos, they want to know how you cope with it. When this happens, you've been invited into a conversation about your hope in Christ. 1 Peter 3 Uh, 13 through 17 is is informative here. This is a dangerous message, but it's informative. It says to be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. And you are asked a question and it's time to respond in a biblical way. Don't be one who hides from the gospel. Tell them why you love your wife, why you respect your husband. When they question you, take notes and details of what was said. Who said what, when, the place, keep a record. You may need it someday because this is a litigious society. University professors face persecution every day. Act like a Christian inside or outside the classroom, and it could cost you your career and your livelihood. Question evolution. Show that you have some doubt in that theory. It may be costly. But you must be ready as a believer. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation, even for your coworkers. Are you doing God's will from the heart? If yes, you will be called to account for it. You will be threatened, maligned, and you will be discriminated against. We know this already from 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You may suffer for it even on your job. As you follow instructions and do God's will from the heart, from the soul, 518, God's Holy Spirit fills you. Well, there's a third way to be filled with the Spirit at work. It's in verse 8. Believers must receive their reward. The words receive back in the text there also mean recompense or, or compensate. Let me give you another example. 
It's in Colossians 3.23. If you want to turn there, you can. I can just simply read it. Colossians 3.23 and 24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive, think recompense or compensated. You will receive the reward of your inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Back in Ephesians 6, we want to think about this. Image or imagine the slave owner's delight as they hear verses 5 through 8 about how their people have to respond and be obedient to what they're saying. They hear this for the first time, but we've got to consider this in context. This is important. Context is critical, which brings us to the fourth way to be filled with the Spirit at work. I said, bosses, hold on. This is where it really gets important. If you manage other people, you're responsible for other people in the marketplace. This is important. Look at verse 9. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. And masters, bosses, do the same things to them. What on earth is Paul talking about here? He says, do the same things. Verse 9, bosses do. Do what, Paul? So we say, all right, boss man, boss woman. Paul says, you've got to do the same things as your slaves. What kind of business are you running, Paul? Clearly you weren't a CEO of a major corporation. Does he really know what he's talking about? Must bosses obey their employees, Paul? Is he saying that masters must be slaves of their slaves? It just sounds silly. Shall bosses take marching orders from their direct reports with fear and trembling, Paul? Is that what's going on? The last time we saw that word do in verse 9 is in verse 6. In verse 6, how were slaves to obey? They're to do the will of God from the heart. They were to serve as unto the Lord and not to men. Whatever good thing they do, what? They will receive back from the Lord. Paul's emphatic in verse 9. Bosses do the same things. What same things? What's he talking about? Look closely at verse 6, especially if you're the boss. Boss, do the will of God from the heart. Boss, serve as to the Lord, not to men. Whatever good thing you do, you'll receive back from the Lord. Bosses, he's not done with you yet. He has more for you. Two additional leadership principles in verse 9. Believers mustn't threaten their employees. Believers must recognize that their master doesn't show partiality or favoritism. He doesn't care that you're the boss. And masters do the same things to them. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Paul knows what it's like to threaten people. This word is used very few times in the New Testament. It's used in Acts 9.3 of Paul. He's familiar with this word. In Acts 9.3, he breathed threats and murder against the Lord's disciples. He wanted to kill them. You mustn't threaten your employees. Now, holding them accountable for quality work is very different from threatening them. This is Management 101. If you have underperforming employees, do they have a skill problem or a will problem? Is it something they can be trained on to do better with what they're doing? Or do they 
clearly indicate they don't want to do what they're supposed to be doing. You can coach to skill, but you've got to fire will. If they don't want to do it, then that's a whole different story. Some employees must be terminated, but only because they haven't met clear expectation over time and respectful coaching. Bosses, are you leading in a manner worthy of your calling? Ephesians 4, 1. Ephesians 1, 4. Are you withholding raises and promotions and recognition or benefits from your employees when your organization has the wherewithal to honor them as unto the Lord? As Jesus' slave, do God's will from the heart. This does away with the need for unions. If, if we're serving our employees as though they are Jesus himself, then we're taking care of them in a way that Jesus would care for them. As a leader, honor Christ by supporting the people he sovereignly placed under your care. Put another way, you must lead as if you're managing Jesus himself. Recognize that the good you do, you'll receive back from the Lord. I said there's a second leadership principle. As you lead worthily of your calling in verse 9, believers recognize that their master shows no partiality. They must give up threatening because, you must give up threatening because you know that your master and their master isn't partial. I am grateful for this text. I, I wish I would have understood it in the way I understood it, understand it now during those corporate years. If the Holy Spirit didn't include this message in God's word, how would we know God's direction his instruction for an employee-employer relationship. Well, just as we think about what we've looked at this morning, you must be filled with the Spirit while on the corporate clock, and you're given four action items to fully embrace. Believers must follow instructions. Submit to those that God has placed over you. That's God's design. Believers must do God's will from the heart. Render service, not to men, but as to the Lord himself. Believers must recognize that their good will be rewarded in verse 8. The Lord is good to his faithful saints. And believers must lead as if managing Jesus. Lead those under your charge as though you were leading Jesus himself. And that's how we are filled with the Spirit, even at work. Father, we give you thanks for this morning. We give you thanks for the truth of your word that you, you address even what we might think are the most mundane things in our lives. You've given us a job description as your first communication to us, and that job description continues. And Lord, by, by your purposes, it's extremely difficult. And yet we want to serve unto, as unto you. We think of things in even our own minds, the difficulties we face. And how do I serve in such a way that honors you, Lord? This is hard. And so, therefore, we need to pray for one another. We need to hold one another accountable in love and in care and talk about these things amongst ourselves so that we can be a light of the gospel, so that we can pursue the great commission even in the world of our work. Would you bless these efforts? Father, I pray for those who uh, own businesses, for those who serve in those businesses. They serve you. I pray, Lord, that you would give them great grace and peace and an ability to to serve in such a way that the gospel is made much of, and you are known because of the way we serve our employer by serving you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.